Christine, wonderful band for leading us. Thank you all for being here today. Um, so my heart, just to open with this, um, I do have a, a sense that the, the Lord Jesus uh, wants to save someone uh, today, uh, perhaps um, in the next couple of weeks, and uh, just want just to try to be real with you enough just to say that. So if, uh, if you came here this afternoon and uh, you just, uh, you know you're around this thing, but you're not all the way in and all the way with it, um, do have a sense that today could be especially for you. Um, not going to embarrass you, not going to call you out, not going to ask you to stand up or anything. I just want you to know that in the course of these next few moments, I, I, think, the, I think that the living God himself uh, wants to speak to you and address you. So maybe that's you. Here we are. Here's the challenge with what we have ahead of us. We are so familiar with the cross. Uh, many Christians feel so familiar with the cross that we probably feel like we've mastered it. Uh, we, if, we're not, if we're not dealing with some sort of like mastery of the idea for what's proposed this afternoon, we probably feel like we are so preoccupied with our own selves and our own lives and our own story probably feels like a massive hurdle and journey to go all the way back there and to think about what happened there and what that could ever mean for us today. So that's the challenge. And that's the exact journey that I think God wants to take us on together. Seven words from the cross. These seven sentences, these seven phrases that God spoke while hanging on a tree. Final words, last words, are intended to be lasting words. The last words that come out of someone's mouth, they tell us a lot about who that person was, what that person stood for, what was on that person's mind right there at the end, right? And let me, let me just share with you a few, like, famous, some beautiful, some, some almost humorous, uh, last words. Harriet Tubman. Um, helped run the Underground Railroad in the United States, helping liberate so many people from the wicked act of the slave trade. Famous last words, swing low, sweet chariot. Karl Marx, and yes, we're going to try to get everyone with us over the course of these next few illustrations. So Karl Marx, last, he said, last words are for fools who have not said enough already. Leonardo da Vinci, and this one is the, like the height of irony. Da Vinci, right? Notice the photo. Da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And yet, we gather with the iPhone. Augustus, famous for saying, I found Rome in clay and I left it in marble. That's a flex. I couldn't find one of Augustus, so I just gave you some Rome right there. How about Pancho Villa, Mexican revolutionary? Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> Winston Churchill, I'm bored with it all. And then he dies. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. Steve Jobs, I think it's his sister. It could be his cousin. My memory was a little, little blurry, a little fuzzy. Apparently, last words is recorded. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I hope I can be found with the Apostle Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Here's the question for this room today. 
what will your final words be? Whatever you believe about what happens after you speak those last words, the fact of the matter is every birth certificate has an expiration date. We are all going to die. And when we die, what will those final words be? What will they be for you? The last words, it's already been mentioned, they're significant. They tell us what the life was spent about. They tell us what's on our mind right there at the finish. They tell us what's happening next and where it's going. Now, good news, we don't have to wonder what the Lord Jesus was thinking about in his final moments. We don't have to wonder. We're not left to guess. We're not left to some sense of suspense. We don't have to give way to skepticism. What was important to Jesus? What did Jesus care about? What was Jesus thinking about? What did Jesus have to say right there at the end? We have them. Seven words. Seven sentences or phrases. The Gospels, they give us the final words of Jesus. So we don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. You don't have to say, well, I guess it'd be great if we knew. We have them, and we're studying them over the next couple of weeks. Today, the word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Next week, the word of salvation, where he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thinking specifically about the mums in the house with us in three weeks' time, the word about relationships where Jesus looks at his mom and he says, woman, here is your son. Four weeks' time, his need, I thirst. In five weeks' time, the word of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In six weeks' time, the word of reunion, Father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. And finally, the word of triumph, it is finished. Final words of Jesus. His words, not mine. His thoughts, not this church's. Who He is, what He said, what He was all about is what is on offer. And today I just want to introduce this to you. I want to kind of frame up the next couple of weeks of our life together by diving into this word, Luke, 20, Luke 23, 32 to 34. It was just read for us. Let's see it one more time right here. Two other criminals right there. He's led out to be executed, brought up on this hill called the Skull And there it is, verse 34, that's going to be our focus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's the word. That's the first word he has to say. People standing around, soldiers coming up to him, and the sign above him, the king of the Jews. Let's frame up the moment so we can understand where we are. Look at verses 23 32 and 33, let's get the context. It assumes a whole lot of background. I want to make sure you understand what happens. These gospel accounts, these biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, it tells us that just hours ago, he washed his disciples' feet, which is the sign of humility. They had a last supper where they celebrated bread and wine, and the Lamb of God is seated at the table. Ironically, a dispute breaks out of that very moment where the guys sitting at the table are worried about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, Judas goes off to betray Jesus. His friends fall asleep while he asks for prayer. 
He prays so hard that blood starts to come out of his forehead. We, we are, we're left to wonder. He's, he starts sweating blood. It's such an intense moment for him. His disciples flee. His disciples can't stay awake while he's praying. Then his disciples flee. They did not remain faithful when the pressure was turned all the way up. He goes through a corrupt and an unjust trial. He is flogged and he is beaten. He is handed over to the Roman authorities. He is mocked and then he is insulted. He is rejected by everyone imaginable. He is led outside the city, the very city that God chose to come down and bless the, bless the whole earth in. He is marched outside of that city. And the word says they crucified him. And you're actually not given a lot about the word they crucified him in all the gospel accounts because it was such a shameful, it was such a horrific act. It was the kind of thing you'd struggle to even talk about in detail. But we have 2,000 years of history between us, so we're willing to talk about it a little more than they were. God on a cross. In Jesus' time, crucifixion, it was not against the law. Crucifixion was practiced by the law. This looks nothing like the Garden of Eden. This looks nothing like the first few pages of Scripture where God walks with His image bearers in the cool of the day. His image bearers are marching Him outside of a city on an afternoon to nail Him to a tree. This is one of the most powerful arguments for the Christian faith. You're here today and you're especially exploring. You're having a look around. You're perusing the halls of ideas and you're wondering what else is out there. Consider this. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Savior. This defies all categorization. The leader dies. He doesn't just die. He dies a shameful, agonizing, painful death. You look at it and you say, there's no glory here. He just goes? Crucified between two other criminals? We struggle to see this. We struggle to see the shame of this moment. We struggle to really grasp the agony of this moment. On the cross... Uh, he's, he's, been, he's, been, he's been beaten. He's been torn apart. Um, the idea is that hours ago, they would have had him laying over some sort of table or rock while they would have had a, a whip that had pieces of bone and stone and glass tied up in it. And they would just take turns whipping him on the back. And that tired body was responsible for helping carry a crossbeam up a mountain And once they nailed him down and he's laying against the wooden crossbeam and he's exposed bloody back, it was so it was so it was so painful. The exposed wounds were pressed up against exposed wood. The long sentinel radial meter nerve causing deep pain throughout the body. It was a shameful thing. You're stripped naked and you're having to kind of hoist yourself up just to get another breath then kind of collapsed down to wheeze for a few more moments. The Latin word, or the word that we have for excruciating, it's the highest word that we can create to talk about pain or difficulty. It comes from the Latin root, which means out of the cross. 
And we're left wondering, so who's there and how did he respond to it all? When verse 35 tells us who's there, let's, let's be sure we get it. Um, he's being persecuted and consider the people who are standing around him. It's the very group of people that just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday, they were celebrating him. They're throwing palm branches into the streets. They're taking off their jackets and their jumpers and their sweaters. They're laying them down. They're saying, praise, praise God. Here comes our king. We love this king. We're about this king. They were shouting, Hosanna. Yet history tells us on the other side of the city, estimated to be at the same moment, the Romans were sending an extra legion in to populate the city during Passover. Can you imagine the drone footage on this situation? Jesus coming in on a donkey. People laying down their jackets, laying down palm branches. Hosanna, here comes our king. We've waited for this one. And the drone shows us on the other side of the city, a whole Roman legion coming in to fortify the place, the very ones that are going to nail him in a few days. So two parades are happening. We've got we to gotta ask the question, where am I? What parade am I participating in? Well, even the parade that's around Jesus, those are going to be the very ones that are going to help get him nailed to the tree. They've heard him teach. They've seen him heal. But we're at the cross and it all seemed to stop. Religious leaders managed to turn the tide against him. We see they're joining in the sneering. The rulers sneer. He saved himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. The history, the, the backdrop to the moment, after 60 years of anger and corruption, like we feel some anger, we feel some frustration in this room with current governments, not just in this city, with this diverse bunch of people, we feel anger and frustration with corrupt governments all over the world. But this particular city where people were gathered on this day, after 60 years of anger and corruption against the Herodian dynasty, the city was a powder keg of tensions. The Romans were there trying to keep the peace among all the different Jewish factions that were set up. You had the Sanhedrin, you had the scribes, you had the Pharisees, and the religious leadership was so complicated at the time, you didn't have one high priest. You had dual high priests of Caiaphas and Annas. They were serving the people. It, it could not have been more tense. And you have people sitting here all turned against Jesus. John points it out, the religious leaders were turning their backs on him. It's the idea that there's not even a few that really knew him and were advocating for him like off in the corner. The high priest himself, when he's given the opportunity, who are you going to free? The high priest himself says, we have no king but Caesar. It's the idea that corruption has made its way all the way through the sacrificial system at this point. It's completely run out. It's completely played out. Something else is going to have to happen. Even the leader of leaders at the time has gone corrupt. And in this paradigm, they were looking at the book, Deuteronomy 21. Whoever hangs on a tree is going to be cursed. And they wanted to see him cursed, but they didn't have the understanding that he was actually going to be cursed, not for his own sin, but for their sin. Well, then in verse 36, we see the soldiers, they mock him. They offer him wine vinegar. The, the Romans were so secure. They're, they're overseeing this moment. They're, they're not nervous. They, they know what it is to crush rebellions and to stop opposition. But they see this one. They see the rabbi with no army. They see the one who teaches forgiveness. 
And they're like, this is your rebellion. They're having no trouble putting Jesus away. And they even have a little fun with him. Uh, One commentator helps us to see, you can imagine this as an ironic palace court scene. So they set him up. They have two other criminals. They have two other failed revolutionaries against the crown. They set Jesus up right in the middle of them both. It's the idea when they wrap him up in a purple robe and they, they act like they're bowing down to him and they wag their heads and they make fun of him. It's the harassment they're pouring onto him. They make up a crown, not of gold and jewels, but of thorns, and they hammer it into his head, bowing down, mocking him, and making fun of him. Oh, you're so great now, Jesus. And the false, the false court scene starts to give its way as he's hoisted up now, one on the right, one on the left. And Rome's message to everyone who watches, look at these total failures. They're played out. There's no more power plays. There's no more sermons. There's no more healings. It's dead and done now. My question for us this afternoon is can we feel the weight of this scene? And then can we, can we hear that question starting to rise? It's a double question. How would you have responded? And the better question is how did Jesus respond to it all? His whole ministry was Luke chapter 4. goes back to Isaiah 61. It was his life verse. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has appointed me to preach good news, proclaiming the liberation of captives for the poor, lived a life looking after the marginalized and the, and the unreached, and saying, I am here to care for people. And I'm here to proclaim good news. Rome couldn't handle it. And as C.S. Lewis would say, here, here in his love, the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves, hangs nailed to a tree. So how does he respond to all of this? Well, he responds with one of the most staggering prayers that have ever been prayed in the history of humanity. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. You strike him with nails, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. Put him on an unjust trial, treat him with trumped up charges, take him out, mock him, beat him, torture him, make fun of him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. What a prayer! The, the, the tense of the verb that we're given here in Greek tells us this is an ongoing and continuous action. So you're not given a detail where you're left to wonder, I don't know, man, maybe somebody just misheard him. You, you, you can't hold that as one of your hypotheses about this man. The, 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 the actual text of Greek won't allow you to. It's the idea that he had to keep uttering this phrase over and over and over again. Otherwise, it would have been recorded another way. It's the idea that as they're stretching him out, he continues to say it, Father, forgive them. They don't know what what this is. It's the idea is he's heaving his back up and down the wooden beam. The, The prayer has to continue to come. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine this? Looking at your enemy. Looking at the one who is opposed to you. Father, forgive them. 
He doesn't know. Father, forgive him. She does not know what she's doing right now. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. What's amazing is we see a man who's practicing what he preached. A few chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6 in particular, he told people, he said, this is how you're going to live your life. This is what life in my kingdom is going to look like. You're going to love your enemies. And you're going to pray for people who persecute you. And now we get to see what this actually looks like. We get to see that wasn't just metaphor. And we don't get to write off the Sermon on the Mount as some ideas that were fit for another age. We get to see what this looks like in real time flesh and blood history. Here he is showing us how to do it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. As he heaves, as he suffers, and as he breathes. As he sees people that he was involved in creating in his own image and his likeness. Gathering around him. Hurling insults at him. Sneering at him. And jeering at him. Making fun of him. Saying into those moments, Father forgive them. They don't know what they do. Well, when all of this is rolled up, we see when you're going through hell, the Sermon on the Mount is the only resource. It's this otherworldly vision for how we're going to live in this world. Yeah, we're going to need help. We're going to need the resource that Jesus had in him. We're going to need the Spirit of God that was resting on him. We're going to need his vision filling up our minds if we're going to be able to live like this. But we see what he was preaching is actually the power to transform the world. So what does he say? Let's examine it together. First word out of his mouth is Father. What a referent point. Doesn't start with the word I. He doesn't start with the word me. He begins with the word Father. Strike him with nails and he goes relational. Father. He's huge. I mean, he is so far beyond each and every one of us to be able to respond like this. Father. He's in relationship. Even in this moment of pain, he's communing with God. Most people in our world today, we have some sort of sneaking suspicion that there's something out there. Uh, you'll hear it talked all in this schoolyard when the kids are being dropped. And all up and down Lonsdale and Salisbury Roads is, oh, well, it seems like the universe is good vibes today. And it's, oh, it seems like, you know, Mother Nature's happy today. And you hear this around offices. You hear this around coffees. You hear this around after work drinks. These vague notions that there's something out there, this positive vibes. But a force doesn't care about you. Gravity doesn't care about your love life. Like planetary orbits and forces, they care nothing about how your yesterday went. Oh, vague conceptions of something else that's out there aren't going to work. Christians are the one walking around with the only core resource. We do not believe in some impersonal, generic force for this world behind history. We believe in a personal, physical God that in this moment was killable. Jesus can trust that his prayer will be answered because he lived a life connected to the Father's heart. And you're striking him with nails and it's coming out of his mouth. Father. You hear the relationship running over. Father. 
Father, hearkening back. Wait, what did he say just a couple of chapters ago? Luke 15. There's a father who went running down the road to welcome the prodigal in. And he's sitting here. He's not a prodigal, but he's taking the place of a prodigal. And he's looking at people made in his image and his likeness. And the first word out of his mouth, Father. He's connected. He's relational. And where does he go? He says, forgive them. The words ought to blow us away. I was flying out of Montgomery, Alabama on Sunday afternoon, and as the plane was covering up the north part of Alabama, I was reading these words, and they broke me afresh. Forgive them? I started weeping. I started weeping in a little one, two-seater plane with people all around me, nowhere to hide. I started weeping thinking about this. Forgive them? You strike him with nails. Forgive them? An idea that he didn't say it once. Forgive them? Forgive them? Forgive them. We care a whole lot about justice. We care a whole lot about God getting his way and getting his fix and getting his verdict on the world. I don't know if we talk a lot about it like this. Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. Crying as this plane's I'm like, was this thing going to make it? Like we're just barely gaining altitude. I'm weeping over these two words. It's the glory of the cross. It's what we get to sit in for a few weeks together. Think about what's on offer here. What Jesus is doing in this moment, it is a, it is a multifaceted diamond that you got to turn around and look at it from all the different facets and perspective. Here, behold, friend, behold, ransom, payment for the debt of sin that we owe. Here, behold, substitution. Jesus offers himself in our place. He goes in our place. He is punished for the sin that we have. And He is giving us something we cannot afford. Behold in this moment, propitiation, satisfactory sacrifice for the justice of God. See the wrath of God in this picture being poured out into the life of His Son. And see His righteousness flowing from Him to all who would believe in Him. Look at this picture of victory right here. This bruising of the heel and this crushing of the serpent's head. We receive victory. We receive forgiveness through this victory that's being won on a wooden tree. On a bare back versus a wooden beam. Look at this ultimate sacrifice. We are the inheritors of a new covenant. We become a new people. People, we ain't known each other but for a minute. But by the grace of God, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different socioeconomic brackets become one. Look at this new covenant that's being made. Look at this new foundation for humanity. Not a racial group. Not a class system. Not something organized by postcodes. But something radical. It's happened on the cross through the words Forgive them. The cross is the complete forgiveness verdict that we ache for. And I wonder, did you come here this afternoon aching for this verdict in some part of your life? You've been around this thing for a minute. You've been hanging out around church and we're glad. But this hasn't become yours. You're glad to be around other people. You, you kind of pick up some of the warmth of what they have just by being close to them, but is this your verdict? Forgiven. For all the words you've ever said, for all the thoughts you've ever thought, for all the actions you've ever committed, and all those times you knew the right thing to do and you failed to do it. Forgiven. That's His offer. 
That's what he extends to you right now in this moment. If you just look at this man on this tree, if you would just hear these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing and just turn it back into the prayer. Father, forgive me because I know what I have done. That's the moment. That's when the verdict becomes your verdict. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. So, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. I'll be honest with you. Uh, contrary to popular opinion around this room, I spend a lot of my days trying to figure out what I'm doing. You know, I spend a lot of my life going around trying to figure out what it is I'm doing. And some of you are like, man, you need to try harder. I'm working at it, okay? But you think about it. We spend our lives trying to figure out how to maximize pleasure and how to avoid pain. We learn how to avoid the unproductive, dysfunctional behavior that's around us. We learn to engage in more fruitful ways of living. We find out what are, what's the beneficial conduct patterns, what's the non-beneficial conduct patterns, and we lean beneficial. But possessed with a keen sense of self-awareness, we move more reflectively into our knowledge of the world, and we see where it ultimately lands us all. It ultimately lands us with people just like this, nailing a man to a tree. What we need is something beyond being keen, beyond being aware, beyond being smart. Careful and prudent people nailed Jesus to the tree. We're the ones there on Friday, rationally following the best of Western jurisprudence. We need something from beyond ourselves. And it's going to be hard to even hear this even in this moment because the tempter all the way back in the garden of Genesis chapter 3, this is the thing that he promised. This was the false promise. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You want your eyes opened? Disobey God and live a life of disobedience to God. Then you will know. Then you will know what separates you and God. Yet here in this first word from the cross is the word that undercuts the lie in the garden of Eden. Jesus does not pray for the good and the innocent people. He prays for the ignorant people. He prays for the people that have believed the lie, that their eyes have been opened and, and they know. What do they know? They know they're ignorant. And here we have the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. If I could speak very personally to some Christians in the room, you're going through this life and you know that you're forgiven, but it, it just doesn't feel forgiven. Take fresh heart today, my friends, because it seems to be some sort of suggestion within Jesus' saying that human beings are in the grip of something that we do not fully comprehend. It means that there's ultimately nothing that I could ever do or I could ever say to totally solve the problem. Jesus is looking at people and saying, even in these people, they don't fully understand. We don't have full awareness. We are seen through a glass that's dimly lit. It also means that no one here, no one here is beyond the reach of God. If God is going to wait till you and I come to him and we flag up and say, hey, I was wrong. I did wrong. I didn't do you right. If he is going to wait, then he would wait for all of eternity. He goes first and he says, forgive them. And then the people that are forgiven, they return to him saying, Father, forgive me. I can see what I've done. I wonder if you can say that. You can feel that prayer rising in you as you see this man on the street. Father, forgive me because I know what I've done. He's gone first. He's taken the cross. He took the cross before you were born. He took the cross before the sins were committed. Now he says this word, Father, forgive him. 
if you only return to him and say, Father, forgive me because now I know and now I can see. Situation will be changed. Situation will be forgiven. He'll bring you all the way home. He knows forgiveness has to be the, the first word because there's going to be no reunion of God and humanity without it. You ever had the tough situation with a friend, a coworker, a family member? The beef comes in, the strife ran deep, and then unforgiveness sets up. What's the problem with unforgiveness in relationships? The problem with unforgiveness in relationships is a barrier now exists between two people. And we can't get close to each other. We can't come all the way home to each other until we deal with the problem. You can see the person, but you can't really see the person all the way. You can hug the person, but the embrace isn't all the way full and heartfelt. And I think that's why Jesus kept saying this word on the cross. Because if he's going to be able to give us six more words, he can't let the pain set in now. He can't let the division of relationships set up on him yet. He's got to go in and dismiss it every time it comes up. Father, forgive him. i got to be close to him because I'm going to save him. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive him. His perspective was so huge. Begins with the word Father. Goes to the word forgive them. And in his full knowledge, he embraces us in our ignorance. It's masterful. 40, 50 days later is going to be Pentecost. 3,000 Jews are going to be believing in this crucified one. They're going to be baptized. And you can take heart today. God can build a church on spiritual failures. God can take people who nailed him to a tree and he can make them leaders in his work. He can take people who used to sneer at him and he can make them people who worship him. He used this very spot where, I mean, in this culture, somebody ain't even washed their clothes from the crucifixion. 40, 50 days later, fire and wind come down. The Spirit of God is there. The gospel is preached and 3,000 come home. And that prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, was simply transformed. Father, forgive me because I see it now. I know what I've done. So the cross is saying to us this afternoon, if you've denied Jesus, he can grant you forgiveness. If you've sneered at Jesus, he can grant you forgiveness. If you've acted like you don't know him, he can grant you forgiveness. You said you're going to do something for him and you failed him, he can grant you forgiveness. Maybe you've even stirred up lies against him, presented half-truths and mixed pictures about him. He can grant you forgiveness. If you have betrayed him, if you have hated him, see the Roman soldier. See his chief priest at the time. See the religious Pharisee and embrace the good news. We can be forgiven. So I encourage you, bring your sin to Jesus. Right now in this moment, you're just letting that prayer rise and the verdict is being laid down on your life. Not by me, but by the God who knows you and is working in your life right now. He can forgive you. He will not condemn you. He will not cast you away. He will not say, yeah, but you're going to be the exception to the rule. He will forgive you. I wonder if we can just see the beauty of this against the other world religions. You look at what we're talking about today. This is utterly unique. No, no one else is, is offering this. You search London far and wide, you're not going to find a better offering. You're not going to find a better deal. 
Animism has nothing to say. No awareness of a personal relationship with God. And right now, it's kind of popular, especially up here in the Northwest, to be spinning up Hinduism and Buddhism. Think how broke this is. Hinduism, there's no awareness of a personal relationship with God. Brutal facts of being reincarnated into a caste system. No jokes. Buddhism knows nothing of a personal, loving, forgiving God. Has no reference point for what we're talking about this afternoon. Islam has a bit of a personal God, but he's a brutal father figure that the actual one walked around with a bloody sword. And he's the kind of God that says, you go fix yourself, you go clean yourself up, and then maybe, just maybe, I'll choose to bring you back. But only Christianity has the picture of Luke 15, a loving father that sees the prodigal just turn around on the journey and the father takes off, bringing shame onto himself, not caring about what other people are going to think to fully bring that prodigal home and restore that prodigal all the way. Forgiven. It's utterly unique, friends. No one else in your office is offering what you're carrying. You got something unique on you. You got news of a forgiving father who wants to welcome people home. We got news to share this Easter season. Marshall Hoffman says the door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. So we got to start thinking about how we're going to respond to this today. The door of the kingdom swings open for some of us to walk through. It's just a door called forgiveness. You just walk in. That's in me. I was involved in this. I, I helped. Yep, I contributed to this. Forgive me, God. Welcome in. We'll, we'll sort it all out as we go, but welcome in. That's it. Done deal today, friend. Go home and have your best night of sleep of your life. You're forgiven. But for others of us in our relationships, we got to make sure forgiveness has come all the way home for us. Hannah Arndt has a fantastic book on the human condition, and she says forgiving, forgiving, forgiving is the only reaction which does not merely react, but it acts out anew, something unexpected and unconditioned by the act that provoked it. Forgiveness is the act that can free both the one who forgives and the one who has been forgiven from the consequences. Forgiveness allows the story to take a new turn. I don't know if you've noticed the, the corruption all around us, the bitterness all around us, the malice all around us, the anger suppressed beneath barely smiling nice people's faces all around us. And forgiveness allows the story to take a turn. Bitterness you might feel against God for something that happened to you in your story. That bitterness you might feel against another human being in your story. Forgiveness disrupts the cycle of brokenness and can let there be a new way forward. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's hard. In Jesus' case, it's hard as nails, but it's right. And Jesus shows us there's a way. Jesus shows us the kingdom uh, the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, that's not metaphor. That's a way to live. And he shows us. Earlier he commanded us, forgive your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And this verse right here, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, this was the original John 3.16. John 3, 
This is the OG right here, friends, right? We're running around in this John 3.16 type Christianity right now, but for the first 500 years where Christianity was the outside, not the inside idea, this was the life verse for the early church. Running around town, holding this one up, having to believe on this one, having to go hard with this one. We're going to love our enemies, and we're going to pray for those who persecute us. Spoken by a man who didn't only talk it, but he eventually lived it. It's costly. It costs God his son. It costs the father his son. It costs the son his life. It will cost us. It will cost us some pride. It will cost us some stubbornness. It will cost us some being misunderstood. But the standard is right here hanging on a tree. And his name is Jesus. And it's the first of seven things he wants to say to us in the next couple of weeks. John Stott says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to understand that it's something done by us. Before we get to wonder and before we get to mystery, we have to see ourselves there in the crowds. We have to see ourselves identified in a crowd. We are responsible, my friends. We are responsible. I am responsible. Probably would have been the high priest at the time without the Spirit of God just giving it up to make a move. We have, we have no king but Caesar. What you talking about? We are all responsible, my friends. We are all responsible for marching Jesus Christ outside the walls of our hearts and being sure that he is abused, mistreated, and overlooked out there. We are responsible. We are responsible for killing off the peacemaker and saying we want nothing to do with your peace. We are responsible. And it's only when we see that we are the culpable people that this offer of forgiveness appears most glorious. Can you see yourself as responsible? So here's where we conclude. In fact, band folks, if you want to come up here, I'll, I'll wrap it. God is great in Sinai. He's great, Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. Utter failure from the people of God, and God was great. Thunders preceding him, lighten, lightnings attending him, the earth trembling before him, the mountains falling in fragments all around him. You want a great picture of God? Look at Sinai. God is great, but there is a greater God than this in the pages of Scripture. On another mountain, a little hill called Calvary, we see him there nailed to a cross. We see him wounded, thirsting, and dying. And we hear him crying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The power plays and religions of this world. Great is the religion of power, but greater is the religion of love. In our strong desire for justice and to be seen in the right way, Great is the religion of implacable justice, but greater is the religion of pardoning mercy. Calvary is the greatest mountain. Romans 5, 8 reflects, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He told us himself it'd be like this. John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, that he's going to lay down his life for his friends. And it's time to respond to this. If you need to forgive someone, now's the time. As we're standing in a school hall, bands playing, people singing, it's time to release the debt. It's been said that forgiveness 
is about getting the other person off your back. The time you were overlooked. A time you were wrongly mistreated. A time somebody did you wrong. It's time to let go. Don't you want it? Don't, aren't you just looking for some sort of precipitating event to where it was like it was there? It was that church service in a ridiculous school hall. The message became clear. I saw what I'd done to the Son of God. And if that's how he loves me, I got to reflect that. Debt released. Forgiven. We're pressing in as a church family right now. We're wanting more of God. We're saying, come Holy Spirit. We're saying, fill us up. Fill up this community. Fill up this corner of London. We have to ask the question, is there anything in us that's inhibiting this work from going forward? So we say, Father, forgive us. We say, Father, forgive me. And we look around and remember in the same Sermon on the Mount where he taught us to pray, he mentioned forgiveness not once but twice. Must be real important. It's the first word out of his mouth. Forgive you. Forgive you. Forgive you. So maybe you have someone that you need to forgive. Now's the time. Today's the place. Debt's released. Walk out of here with a looser soul. You can have it. You might need to ask someone for forgiveness. Jesus forgives people who didn't ask him. But you might need to go and ask. You might have harbored something in your heart. You might have nursed that grudge. You might have driven that wedge. And the release that the Lord is calling you to right now in this is to go and ask. Might be across this room. Might be across this city. Might require a messaging app to ask for it, but we need to ask. But maybe most importantly, you're sitting here this afternoon and you realize you need God to forgive you. The only power you're going to have to be this transformative person in presence where this is flowing through you is to first receive it from him. Maybe you've asked him to forgive you, but you just haven't kept up with that. You haven't continually been going to him and asking. Now's the day. We can open up the airway again. Fresh oxygen can flow. Life can now live. Hear his prayer. See him on that tree. Listen to what he says to you. I forgive you. So won't you come running to him? I see what I've done. So now forgive me. Some time to respond, okay? In a moment, we're gonna have some people from our prayer team standing over here. They are not special. They, they all need to be forgiven and they've all been forgiven, okay? If you wanna pray with somebody, you just gently come walking over here. We will pray for you. You, you don't even know what to pray. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just sense what the Lord has for you and we'll pray for you right now. Especially if that's you where you know I've been around this thing, just haven't been in this thing. I need in on the verdict today. I need the verdict of forgiveness. You especially come over here, okay? Maybe you got something that's blocking you. You, you want to be that kind of person that forgives freely. You're just not there yet. That's fine. Come pray. We'll ask that God will give it to you. We will pray for you as you pray where you are. So can we do it? Can we stand? Can we get ready to sing? And as we do, I just want to pray something for our congregation. These will be more than words this afternoon. Come on, God. We need you, God. So we open up our hearts to you. We open up our lives to you. We want you to have it all. Have every single bit of us, God. We want to know what it is to be fully taken care of by you. So all the actions, we surrender them to you now, God. All the thoughts we've ever thought, we give them over to you. Everything from this last week, God, we choose to give it to you afresh. Please announce that verdict. Let us hear you, God. 
forgiven. I forgive you. Help us to hear you, God. We need to hear this in our lives. Father, we do want to be a place where your spirit is delighted to dwell. So we say, come and search us. Search me right now in this moment. Search us across this room. Find any evil and anxious way in us and expose it and help us to give it to you. We do want to be a group of people that you are delighted to work in and you're delighted to work through. So wash us clean, God. Would bitterness not be named among us? Would wrath not be named among us? Would you make us a community of people that's quick to release debts and quick to release grudges? We pray you would move us there even now. Thank you for these beautiful words. We want to draw near to this son to hear what else he has to say. If the conversation starts here, where are we going to go next? Thank you for this forgiveness, God. Help us to rest in it. Help us to fully give it out to the people around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.